It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. We wrap up our 1950s discussion. Tommy Heinsohn, Bill Russell, their impact on the Boston Celtics. Now on the Friday Locked On Celtics, Millie's Let's Go. Crowd goes crazy, most in-depth coverage on the daily, mainly podcast royalty, the content kings. When you talking about the franchise with 17 rings, focus like Danny at the deadline. Global with it got a local feel like the red line, the blue line, the green line. Play it in between time. I'ma throw my C's jersey on in the meantime and press play. When the F's done, I can't wait until the next day. Trying to stay in tune with the C's, it's the best way. Melly. Hey, it's John Corrales here from MassLive.com. It's a Friday. I want to thank you for sticking with this podcast as we continue to traverse this weird, wild landscape that is the NBA and sports hiatus during a global pandemic. We don't know what's going on. We don't know a lot of the answers, but we do know that we have each other, and I am here to provide for you at least a little bit of an escape. So, We are going to continue. There's no real other news to talk about today. So this entire podcast is the finale of the 1950s discussion. It's Mike Dynan of RedsArmy.com. He's a Celtics historian. When we get into next week, 1960s, and that's where Mike is really like, he's been to those games. And that's going to be a lot of fun to get first-person analysis of what happened in those games in the 60s and 70s from a guy who saw them happen. It's going to be it's going to be fun. I'm really looking forward to that conversation. That's next week. If this is your first podcast of this week, then please go back and listen starting on Tuesday. We go, we went with the birth of the Boston Celtics. Walter Brown, the owner, hiring Red Arback, his almost turn to Duke and and becoming an almost uh Duke Blue Devils head coach. We talked about Bob Cousy and how the Celtics twice were prepared to not take Bob Cousy in both the NBA draft, which they did pass on him, and the dispersal draft. You have to go check that out. And then yesterday, the Thursday podcast was the 1956 NBA draft where the Boston Celtics got Tommy Heinsohn, Casey Jones, and Bill Russell. So those are the three historical podcasts from earlier this week. Today, more in-depth about Bill, more in-depth about Tommy Heinsohn. Tommy Heinsohn's incredible, epic Game 7 as a rookie. Him winning Rookie of the Year over Bill Russell. All of that stuff being discussed here. So please subscribe. Five-star ratings would be amazing. Good written reviews would be amazing. I know not everybody's giving us that five-star rating or good written review. I'm hoping that I can earn some more of those to continue to rise in the rankings. We continue to be the number one Boston Celtics podcast, and I'm very appreciative of that. So please continue to do so. All right, here's our discussion. It's me, it's Mike Dynan of RedsArmy.com talking about the 1956 draft. We now have moved past that and the selection of Bill Russell. He joins the Boston Celtics. Um, and it's great that he has his his college teammate Casey Jones kind of as a um, a buffer, let's say for uh, for him as he uh, joins this new team. And well, actually, 
actually Casey oh, no, wait, didn't Casey, come in until the next year. That's right. That's right. Because he was was a military, right? Yes. Yes. So so Casey comes in a year later, uh, but still a teammate of his. And so the Celtics in 1956-57 uh, finish 44 and 28. Uh, so it's a 72 game season. Uh, they end up, there's only two rounds of playoffs, right? They beat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, um, they beat the Syracuse Nationals and they beat the St. Louis Hawks for, for a title in the first year. Uh, so it should be noted that the NBA back then was, uh, a little bit different, let's say. <laughs> yeah. Um, eight teams. That's um, one of the things that people who don't like the Celtics uh, will always latch on to and say, yeah, they won their rings when they were they were only eight teams. It's all plumbers, insurance salesmen. <laughs> yeah. which, which they were. Get off my lawn, you kids. Well. <laughs> they, there, were, there were plumbers and insurance salesmen who, like Tommy Heinsohn, was an insurance mm-hmm. salesman. Yes, he was. Very successful, too. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of these guys had to work other jobs because, again, this at this point, the NBA is only a few years old, um, and, and, and they have to do a lot of things that uh, to try and, and, and drum up the interest. Um, they were playing, like, double headers at times. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the the early yeah. days of the NBA, this this time in NBA history, it's a struggle. To, you know, the trains to different cities, uh, doubleheaders, all of that stuff. I mean, there's no <laughs> there's no such thing as as uh, resting or load management back then. Right. Um, let me go off on a tangent then, Ooh. based on what you were just saying about tangents. We du- love tangents. You mentioned, you mentioned doubleheaders. Well, so much of the early days of the NBA uh, were uh, aimed at increasing the fan base or building a fan base and, you know, getting people interested, getting them not to care so much about college ball, maybe, and more a little about the uh, NBA, about the pro game. Uh, So much that was done back then. That's how we have the reputation for referees being homers. Um, And it's hard to win on the road. Because back then, the home team would get the calls because then the fans would go home happy and want to come back. Um, they played doubleheaders, not two games in a row by the same teams, but uh, like Boston Garden, the Celtics would play the Lakers. But prior to them playing, the Knicks might play Detroit, mm-hmm. neutral site game. Uh, I they, those were still in uh, being done when I first started following the NBA in the 60s. And there was nothing better. Can you imagine? You used to spend only three, four hours to get in, and you'd have a really good seat, and you see two NBA games. That's wild. What's better than that? <laughs> uh, that's a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. You know, like, um, and and just one other one, an example of the some of the, marketing type things to build interest you know jerry west has a nickname mr clutch sure well not not to disparage jerry west but he was one and eight in the finals so i'm not sure that he deserved the mr clutch name (laughs) 
I would give that to somebody like uh, Sam Jones, who won 10 rings, you know. Mm -hmm. But in any case, he got that name. And I read this in a book about NBA history. He got that name from Chick Hearn, the radio announcer for the Lakers, because they wanted to build up Jerry West in the eyes of the public. So they would so the people would buy tickets. This is an important part. This is an important part of the NBA history. Like this, this really does shape a lot of the league. I'm, I'm fat. Let's go back to the refs because the, I didn't know this part. So you're saying the refs actually did kind of skew towards the home team and home arenas. I'm not saying it was a design. I'm not saying anything like that. I don't know. Okay. Uh, I have, I never, you know, I wasn't around then. I didn't see it in action. But what I've read is that that is the feeling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether it was conscious or not, uh, I think probably they figured maybe it's a good idea if we uh, even subconsciously just favor the home team. Probably back in those days, they wanted to get out of the arena with their wives, too. So, (laughs) you know, uh, Things would get a little crazy back in the fifties. Sure, sure. I mean, look, we did, <laughs> that. It wasn't. It wasn't until re- relatively recently that they even stopped fans from running onto the court after a big win or uh, a championship. <laughs> like, I mean, Larry Bird was fighting guys, like fighting through people on the courts. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah. I mean, for people who don't know, like once upon a time in basketball history. If you've ever heard the term cagers for a basketball player, uh, it's because they actually used to play basketball in cages because they wanted wanted to, like, keep that separation. But they actually had a cage separating the court, uh, which was well before the NBA days. But, like, that was original basketball. So if you ever see or read uh, something on NBA history or basketball history and you see somebody called a cager – that's why. And they were called cagers back then. Uh, a lot of the old clippings would, would have the, the term cagers in there. Headline writers loved that word. Mm. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's a little piece of uh, NBA history for you there. So the relationship between Red and Russell um, and the team is really what fuels a lot of the success. So, one thing about Red is that he never scouted uh, a team, really. Uh, and and Russell kind of documents that in one of his books, too, where he says Red never scouted much. Uh, he said, I don't give a care what they're going to do. I know what we're going to do. Uh, and that's imposing your will on a game and deciding the pace of a game and, and how the game's going to be played. And that goes back to the... Uh, the full court man to man. Um, another element of NBA basketball back then, very much a coach's game. Uh, there's no free agency. There's no players association at this point. These guys are negotiating their own deals. That's um, not for much money, um, and the, the, you can just there's no rules at this point. Teams can kind of do what they wanted, and so. These guys are being pushed and pushed to a limit and, and played a ton, of, a, a ton of minutes. 
NFL teams making bold final moves before the start of the season. From our local experts to your ears, these are the biggest stories on the Locked On Podcast Network. The Tennessee Titans have announced a one-year deal with linebacker Jadavion Clowney, reportedly worth $15 million. Tyler Rowland of Locked On Titans tells you if it's going to be enough to get Tennessee back to the AFC title game. In other moves around the league, the Miami Dolphins named Ryan Fitzpatrick starting quarterback, which means Tua will be back up for the time being. And the Detroit Lions have agreed to a one-year deal with running back Adrian Peterson. Peterson was released by the Washington football team last Friday. For more NFL news and analysis, subscribe to the new Peacock and Williamson NFL show and listen to a brand new lineup on Locked On NFL. They'll have division previews every day this week. Local experts on the biggest stories. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You're up to date on your favorite team, but what about the competition? Hollinger and Nate Duncan are evaluating every bubble contender on Hollinger and Duncan. Rejecting the screen goes behind the scenes with in-depth interviews and the Locked On NBA podcast is recapping games daily. Let the Locked On NBA network of podcasts take care of your NBA bubble scouting reports. Hollinger and Duncan, rejecting the screen, the Locked On NBA podcast. Subscribe to the best trio of NBA podcasts on the planet wherever you get your podcasts. You are Locked On Celtics, your daily Boston Celtics podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. And and one thing that really strikes me when I see guys like Bill Russell playing, they're playing like Chuck Taylor sneakers, these little canvas pieces of shit. And they're playing like 40 minutes a game. Um, let me look it up real quick here. The In in the first, do they, do they keep track of this? Yeah. Uh, Bill Russell played 35 minutes a game in, in those conditions. Uh, Bob Cousy played 37. Sharman uh, played 36. So these guys are playing a lot of minutes in less than ideal athletic conditions with some wild apparatuses is, is holding their knees together and stuff. Um, kind of wild the conditions that they were playing in back then. Yeah, you look at the uh, you look at photos or old video of the Celtics from back then, and uh, invariably, Sat Sanders and Casey Jones will have some kind of sleeve on their knee. Yep. Um, and just. Uh, to your point about playing the minutes, uh, one stat that I happen to know off the top of my head, in 1969, which ended up being Russell's last year, he was 35, I believe, and he and Havlicek, John Havlicek, played all 48 minutes of all seven games in the finals. They never went to the bench. <laughs> Couldn't happen today. Could not and possibly happen. And they were traveling, you know, I don't, not in the 60s, but in the 50s, they were traveling commercial coach airline, you know, sitting in the coach section, mm-hmm. uh, or they'd travel by train or car. Tommy has told stories about getting off a train in the middle of a field and having to walk somewhere. I mean, they didn't have any, uh, any um, luxuries back then. No, they had to. They had to deal with a lot. So, 
I'm not saying that's an excuse for anything. It's, I'm not making an excuse well, as I'm to the era. Right. I'm just saying that uh, reality, uh, the players today have a lot of things going for them that uh, the players back then did not. No, that's true. Look, that, that's, again, the formation of a league where um, they're trying to – like you have to have the the money coming in to be able to spend the money on things. So at the beginnings, you're kind of feeling that out. And look, you, we're talking about this stuff, the comparisons to like the WNBA and the WNBA has the advantage of the league kind of chipping in a little bit, but like they're, you know, they're, they're doing some of the same things to, uh, you know, their second jobs are other, other basketball teams uh, overseas. But like you can see some of the parallels between the attitude of like, okay, this is, We've got to do this to promote the league. We've got to make sure that we're doing this and and things that they have to do uh, that normally uh, an NBA team wouldn't have wouldn't have to do. Uh, so here we are. Okay, we've established that Red has um, developed this relationship with with Bill. He's developed this relationship with Kuzi. It's 1956. These guys now have their stopper. And the Celtics go off and win 44 games, 44 and 28. Like I said, they beat the St. Louis Hawks and lose to the St. Louis Hawks the next year. Bill Russell has never known anything besides the NBA Finals. And 57-58 is the only year that they lose uh, in the NBA Finals. Russell was injured in that series. That's part of the reason that they lost. Uh, they lost in six in uh, 58. Russell missed a, at least one game uh, after spraining his ankle, and then he played hurt after that. Uh, but then to give them give the Hawks credit, uh, Bob Pettit, who was one of the all-time greats from back in the day, uh, he had a 50-point game in the closeout, so, you know, he was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Pettit, good basketball player. Yeah. Uh, and, in fact, uh, the Celtics, uh, like Pettit was, uh, he led the league in scoring. He was the MVP. Uh, he's he's really one of the best uh, to ever do it. Uh, Tommy talks about him a lot. Right? Yeah. Or uh, when he goes into that subject, when he's recalling who are the best players from that day, he points to Pettit for sure. I mean, I mean just as an aside, Pettit was just dominant uh, in his time uh, in the NBA. I mean, he in his MVP season in 58-59, he averaged 29 points a game, uh, which is you know ridiculous in 40 minutes. Uh, Shooting forty four percent, which is was pretty good, uh, and then oh by the way, sixteen and a half rebounds. And this dude averaged twenty six and a half points and sixteen rebounds for his career. Uh, one of the things that always gets me about talking about this era is people say, oh well, the Celtics had it. Like you said, you mentioned this before. Oh, the Celtics had all these great players. Well, yes, but a lot of teams had these great players that are all time greats. So. There were eight teams, and those te- those guys had to work second jobs and all that other stuff. But each team had a few all-time 
great players for the most part. And getting through these players wasn't exactly easy. So facing Pettit uh, was was not exactly uh, the easiest of 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 tasks for the Boston Celtics. Right, uh, with only eight teams or nine, it was uh, I think around 1960ish. There was a, a little bit of expansion, but with an eight-team league, uh, you had the best players. You know, you weren't going to uh, have too many bench riders that never played because uh, you were going to have deeper teams. Maybe they weren't as athletic as they are now, but uh, you wouldn't have a team that wasn't deep. And everybody, as you said, had some good players. Now, in this mix, in this time, uh Red Arback also employs a, a new kind of strategy um, where he starts bringing in sixth men. And Frank Ramsey is a starter level player, but Ramsey becomes like the first kind of legitimate sixth man during this time. And another innovation that kind of Red Arback brings along here is saving one of his best players and kind of bringing him off of the bench to kind of keep this wave of great players coming at you. Um, and and th- this is a big deal. I mean, it, it, Ramsey starts this tradition of amazing six men in Boston, Boston Celtics history. Yeah. Um, and how important is it? They have a six man award. <laughs> you know, right. Um, Ramsey, Ramsey, actually, um, that was a pretty good idea that Auerbach had. Uh, and Ramsey was very effective at it. And then after that, it was uh, John Havlicek. He was a six man role for a while. Um, Paul Silas in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kevin McHale started as a six man. Follow us on our social channels at LO Celtics on Twitter and at Lockdown Celtics on Instagram. Frank Ramsey, by the way, is the reason I'm a Celtics fan because I grew up in New York and I didn't follow basketball at first when I was a kid. I was more of a football, baseball kind of a fan. Mm-hmm. And my best friend, Joe Lowe, Joe Lachavo, who's still my best friend. He read an article in Sports Illustrated by Frank Ramsey, or it was about Frank Ramsey, and he gave away all the little tricks that he used to draw fouls. Yes. It was called uh, Smart Moves by a Master of Deception, and he was a flopper. Let's, we can't was, sugarcoat the, that. Frank he, Ramsey he was, was a flopper. He was the NBA's first flopper. Yes, and for some <laughs> unknown reason, he decided to tell everybody that he was a flopper, and they had illustrations, very well done, uh, that showed his little techniques, like uh, taking a scoop shot two-handed, where he would bring the, bring the ball up underneath the defender's arm and make contact so that he would get the foul. 
or how he would shift his weight without moving his feet so that he could get a charge even if he wasn't in position. And uh, so my friend Joe liked all of that, and he said, uh, I think I'm going to follow the Celtics. And he said, well, if you're following the Celtics, I'm following the Celtics. And uh, that was more than 50 years ago. <laughs> that's that's just amazing. Uh, that that underhand thing, that's like the James Harden move. Was he yeah. Prize. So mm-hmm. uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same, I suppose. But to the sixth man, uh, yeah, Ramsey was uh, the originator of that. And the Celtics had, talking about depth, they had so many great players back then that they could afford to put a Frank Ramsey, who was an All-American in college, they could afford to make him a substitute. Yeah. I mean, there was some level of uh, him being like you, you could do that without hurting your your starting lineup, but at the same time, uh, it still it still is is like the first kind of uh, I guess innovation of, of that sort. Team teams weren't doing that, um, and so the Celtics now armed with Bill Russell. Ramsey as a six man, Koozie, all of these other guys, uh, they start their big run. Um, the first championship is in 57, and then the second championship is in 59. And all of a sudden, in 1959, the Celtics uh, are suddenly a 50 win team, which is even more impressive in a 72 game season. They won 72% of their games. Uh, They maraud their way through the very short playoffs and become NBA champions by beating the Minneapolis Lakers, by sweeping the Minneapolis Lakers. This is the beginning of the true Celtics-Lakers rivalry. Yeah, and... Once again, let's just be sure to point out that the Lakers were in Minneapolis at that time. Let's be sure to point this out. Yes. Uh, and, and before we wrap up this section of, of the uh, the Celtics history, I can't overlook l- the first championship where it was um, it was the Game 7 against St. Louis and Tommy Heinsohn goes off for one of the best game sevens of that you're ever going to see. Um, can you walk us through like that epic kind as a rookie, that game yeah. seven that he had? Yeah. Well, Tommy won the rookie of the year. You know, he, he was, he, Bill Russell was not rookie of the year. That might've had to do with uh, that. He didn't, Russell didn't come in, as we mentioned, until December because of the Olympics. But Tommy was a great, productive player from the beginning. Um, and in that 57 finals, he uh, was the leading scorer for the Celtics. He averaged 24 points and 12 rebounds a game in that series, seven-game series. And in the seventh game, that went double overtime. It was in the garden, and Tommy uh, went for 30, 
Let me make sure I get 30, this right. 37 seven. points, 23 rebounds. And he shot 3 of 10 from the line. 3 of Tommy. 10 from the line. I'm just seeing that now. Oh, my Come God. Come on, Tommy. But he won 17 of 33 from the field. Yeah. Imagine being a rookie and having the balls to take 33 shots in a game seven. But, um, you know, he and he ended up fouling out. I remember seeing a picture of him uh, sitting on the bench after fouling out, and he was covering his eyes. He couldn't watch. He was so nervous. Uh, but imagine uh, doing that as a rookie. Uh, he was something. He was. He, he, his uh, career didn't last that long. I think Tommy played only nine years, and uh, probably because he smoked a lot of cigarettes. And, <laughs> you know, uh, Red used him as his whipping boy. Um, he would – Tommy would be the one to get yelled at by Red in practices. Uh, this is – these are – there are stories up the yin-yang that you can read in the books that Tommy or Red had written. Uh, Red would use Tommy to get the message across because he knew Tommy could handle it. Well, um, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Continue. Yeah. No, you, go ahead. No, no. I I was just going to like add to that point because that's – that that was kind of Heinsohn's role. Um, <laughs> best, <laughs> uh, he he tells a story about um, about that where he he goes up to Red and he says, uh, "Hey Red, let me ask you a question. Do I do I deserve to be on this team?" He says, "Why sure you do, Tommy. Uh, do I deserve to be a star on this team? Says, Absolutely." And I said, "Well, Red, if that's the case, you need to get off my back a little bit." Uh, and start pointing it in other directions because the rookies on this team are starting to steal my socks. <laughs> um, Let me just point out, too, on that game seven, yeah. 57, Bob Cousy went two of 20 and Bill Sharman went three of 20. Yes. So good thing Tommy did what he did. That's the that that's one of the things about the early Celtics and why the arrival of Heinsohn and Russell and Jones make it so important because those teams, as good as they were, kind of choked. And and Tommy tells the stories about how nervous those guys were. And one of the things about Tommy, you, you know, for better or for worse, he was not afraid. He was not afraid of the moment. He was not afraid to shoot. And that dude jacked shots up they call him tommy gun for a tommy reason gun, yeah. um he was uh, a guy that was not afraid to shoot um and he called himself the bailout offensive player uh whenever things broke down he'd be like all right well get it to tommy tommy's gonna find a way to shoot it and you know obviously one of the things you hear tommy talk about especially back uh, a while a while ago talking about the hook shots yeah, uh, he could he, always get that off he would fire hook shots up. Um, he wasn't exactly the most accurate shooter. Sometimes, I mean, he had his ups and downs. He was he was maybe the um, one of the first volume shooters. He would say one of the first volume scores. Is that an accurate way to put it? I think so. Yeah, I, I think that's accurate. <laughs> but Tommy was um, it, it was his it, it was that kind of willingness to say, you know what? I'll shoot it. Not a problem. 
that kind of helped the Celtics to that next level. Obviously, Russell was part of that. You know, you, that's number one. Tommy offensively pulls these these kind of maybe more reticent guys. These these maybe for lack of a better term, softer players, as good as they were. Tommy comes in, and not only is he not afraid to shoot, but Tommy is not afraid to talk. He's not afraid to mix it up. He's not afraid to throw an elbow. He's he's he'd go in there and and knock some guys around. Yeah, uh, that was the era to do that in too. Sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he he famously had fights over and over with Rudy LaRusso of the Lakers. And uh, I think Tom Mascheri of the Warriors, too, was another one of the guys that he was always battling against. He's mentioned those names in telling his stories on the air. He also has a story about getting Wilt Chamberlain to break his hand. Uh, <laughs> uh, in, in one of their series, I forget exactly when, but they had a, a play that Tommy describes where he would set a pick after a Wilt Chamberlain free throw and get Bill Russell streaking down court. Uh, mm. And he basically have to go set a pick on Wilt every time. So he could, he could get Russell loose and, and Wilt kind of said, you know, you do that one more time, I'm going to knock you on your ass. And Heinsohn in pure sixties, trash talk, whatever it was, it was like, bring your lunch. So they got into a fight, and and Wilt basically threw a punch that that hit somebody else and broke his hand, and and Tommy basically got Wilt to break his hand on somebody's on somebody's head. Tommy won, Wilt nothing. <laughs> I mean, there are stories all over the place about Tommy, um, like he and uh, Bill Russell actually squared off against each other in college. And, you know, he was barking at Bill Russell and he threw an elbow at Bill Russell. And, and, and I think there was, you know, that that's the level of uh, kind of attitude that Tommy brought. That attitude that you see from Tommy now is not like something new. <laughs> uh, and the other thing, like you said before, you got we got to talk about Tommy and the cigarette smoking and all of that. Because, as as Red put it, uh, he was basically the oldest twenty uh, seven year old he'd ever seen. That Red, <laughs> Red basically said, like you know, and back then we're talking about late fifties. These guys are smoking. They're having a beer after games. Lord knows what they're doing at halftime. Tommy's just like having fun. Like yeah, whatever. We're playing basketball. Have a smoke. Have a brew. Let's go play some ball. Hey, they were young. They were healthy. They had a lot of energy. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, it was all accepted back then. They weren't doing anything different from anybody else. No. And uh, the whole business about uh, the fighting and the throwing elbows and everything, that was all accepted, too. Nobody got thrown out of games back then. No, not at all. Uh, that was, yeah, you just broke it up, went back to your bench, worked it out. Yeah. Done. Yeah. Um, one of the great stories of Red Auerbach and Tommy Heinsohn is how Red got Tommy, told Tommy, you got to quit smoking. And so Tommy quits smoking and then puts on weight. And 
And then Red says, you know what, Tommy? You got to start smoking again because you're getting too heavy. that's that's the beauty of, of Tommy Heinsohn. You can't the the arrival of Tommy Heinsohn is just such a such a an important moment. Uh, we give so much credit, deserved credit, well deserved credit to uh, Russell as the guy who changes everything uh, offensively. I think it's almost as important to start giving Tommy Heinsohn the level of kind of credit that he deserves as a guy that helped the Celtics on, on the offensive end of the floor kind of take a leap on that end as well. Um, Tommy's this gruff guy. Tommy's the guy that, you know, did the, I love Walter thing. And, and, and is obviously, you know, you ask anybody around the NBA now about Tommy Heinsohn, they, you know, he's, he's that, that big old Homer that, that calls Boston Celtics games. Um, but we'll talk about his coaching, uh, in a couple of weeks when we talk about the seventies, but him as a player, I mean, he's a hall of famer as a player and that gets lost in all of the talk about Celtics history sometimes. Yeah, that's true. I, I agree with that. Um, he, cause it was a long time ago. Right. There's been so much that has happened and so many years have gone by. Um, but you're right. Tommy coming in injected uh, some life into the team, uh, gave them more of an edge probably, uh, even though they had a lot, a lot of guys who weren't afraid to mix it up. But um, Tommy could do that and have the scoring too. I mean, you know, you got like Jim Luskatoff and Bob Branham. Those are names out of the 50s. Uh, they were the enforcer type guys on the Celtics. Uh, but they couldn't then turn around and score 30 points in a playoff game. So Tommy could do that. He brought a hell of a lot to that team. Uh, he did. He definitely did. Um, so let's wrap up the 50s. The 59 uh, championship, they beat the Minneapolis Lakers, the Minneapolis Lakers, uh, a Lakers team that had uh, Elgin Baylor, um, Slick Leonard, uh, not a not a bad team uh, at all uh, back then. Elgin Baylor, another underrated guy in NBA history. Uh, and that's the beginning of the rivalry. Um, and a little bit of revenge for Red Arback, who lost to the Minneapolis Lakers as a head coach in the BAA, as we said at the beginning of this, uh, all of this stuff. So, yeah. uh, Celtics by then they were loaded. They had so many great players. Then Tommy Ramsey, Sharman, Cousy, Sam Jones, Russell, Casey Jones. They're all in the hall of fame. This is the beginning of one uh, of the most amazing runs in sports history. Um, like you said, uh, all of those names, Casey comes in as a rookie. Sam Jones comes in as in his you know early years of his career. Uh, all of these guys who have numbers hanging in the in the rafters. The 1960s bring a lot 
to uh, Boston Celtics history. Obviously the most eventful, probably, uh, of the uh, Celtics decades. And interesting stuff there with Sam Jones and him not really excited about joining the Boston Celtics and and, and, and different dynamics that happen in the, in the 60s. That's all going to happen next week when we talk about the decades. So uh, as we wrap this up here in the 1950s, the Boston Celtics have two championships to their name. Uh, the first two of 17, the first two in a stretch, a stretch where they win, uh, what is it, nine of 10. Uh, this is This is the beginnings of the dynasty. You don't know it at the time. But this is the beginnings of the dynasty, Bill Russell uh, doing what he does, Red Arback creating this era of Celtics pride, starting this uh, this whole notion of being part of a family, being part of something. Um, and and before we wrap it up, this is this is the the beginning of he doesn't do it yet, but we're looking at all of these guys who have their numbers retired and how quickly he starts retiring these numbers. Um, that's all part of, you mentioned Loskatov who's, who doesn't have a number retired. Uh, he has his name retired because he wanted his number 18 to kind of be in circulation. It was later retired for uh, Cowens, but all of these guys Red is making sure that as they are playing, they feel like they're part of something. And as they retire, he immediately makes them. He's establishing this, this Celtic pride. The, the beginnings of Celtic pride start here in the late fifties. Red was a master of people management. And that was all part of it. Uh, what you said about uh, making the, everybody feel like they belong. And retiring the numbers had a lot to do with that. And that's another argument today. Do they have too many numbers retired? Well, probably. But he used, Red used the number retirement as a way of recognizing loyalty and, uh, I think, motivating others. Who wouldn't want to have their number up there? Yeah. So maybe you, uh, you know, you do a little bit extra that, just because you have that possibly in the back of your mind as a, a goal for your career. It's funny that there was no player movement back then, but I wonder how many people really would have wanted to move from the Boston Celtics. It's probably great that they didn't have that power as far as just from the sake of winning games and keeping the, these rosters together. There's no salary cap. There's no need for a salary cap back then because these guys weren't making a ton of money anyway, but this is um, that, that sense of loyalty, that sense of family, the sense of Celtic pride. It really feels like it kept these guys from even wanting to take, take steps to like force a trade or request a trade. Uh, it was really only Macaulay and it, and, and that was a personal situation that, that you can go back to that time and say, okay, well he wanted out. Uh, so, and uh, I don't know that he wanted out uh, desperately. Uh, he he did want out, as you talked about, because of his uh, he had a sick child, um, and he was from St. Louis. But that again is an example of what you mentioned about the luck of the Celtics back in that day. Um, if he didn't want out, 
or if he wasn't from St. Louis, would he have been more, you know, that agreeable to the trade? And uh, could it have worked out? Might he have prevented it from happening? Who knows? But uh, it did work out, and it was in the Celtics' favor. And again, good luck for them. That's it. So to recap, you've got the beginning of the Boston Celtics, Walter Brown through luck having Red R back available, going to the media, asking for their opinion, them saying Red and him hiring Red, twice looking to not get Bob Cousy and finally having it kind of forced upon them. That works out. Red and, and Bob Cousy work their differences out. Um, the luck, like you just said, of Macaulay being from St. Louis and that situation kind of making him agreeable to that and the Hawks saying yes and giving him that pick and the ice capades playing a role because Walter Brown is one of the controlling founders of the ice capades could offer it to Rochester. That brings Bill Russell in and uh, Russell and, and red kind of hit it off, have that uh, immediate respect for one another. And, and now we're cooking now we're cooking. And so We'll leave it there. Next up, the 1960s. And the most dominant run uh, you're going to see from a basketball team uh, ever. Uh, so stick around for more of that. So the Celtics end the decade as the best team in basketball. They began the decade as one of the worst teams in basketball. So again, go back to that Tuesday podcast where we start, and you'll see the first four years of the Boston Celtics were bad. They were a bad team. And it wasn't until Red Arback came around that they started to get good. And it wasn't until Bill Russell, Tommy, Casey Jones got to Boston that they got great. Now, Monday, decade of dominance. The Celtics-Lakers rivalry is now beginning. Okay? We just went into that. The Celtics-Lakers rivalry, the 60s decade, you have Sam Jones joining the Celtics, and Sam Jones being upset that he joins the Celtics. You have Bill Russell becoming the first black head coach in NBA history. You have Bill Russell joining uh, very strongly the civil rights movement and some of the horrible things that he had to endure uh, in Boston and on the road. This is a very tumultuous time for a high-profile black athlete, and it all plays into who he is as a person, who he is as a player, why he is so dominant. It's all part of the story, and it's going to be told next week. Tuesday through Friday are the historical days. Monday's kind of open for the wild card day. Tuesday through Friday We'll get into the deep dive historical stuff. So please subscribe to get this podcast delivered directly to your device. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Follow the show on Spotify. Looking for a lot more Spotify listens. If you listen on Spotify, please do that. Follow the show on Spotify. And again, share the podcast. Tell all your friends. Tell your family that this podcast is still going Monday through Friday. Free daily during the hiatus. Okay, thank you all for listening. Appreciate it. 
This has been the Locked On Celtics Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hi guys, this is Josh Lloyd, host of the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast. The NBA is back, so that means that fantasy basketball is back in one form or another. We've got daily fantasy, but there's also some fantasy leagues with the resumption of play with these eight regular season games in Orlando, and Locked On Fantasy Basketball is going to have you covered. It's not just for fantasy basketball, though, because we recap all of the games across the NBA, so if you're looking for a broad overview of the action across the league every day, Locked On Fantasy Basketball is the podcast for you.